God reigns. As you look at those words, if I may ask you to do that, you can look at them from the word reigns. You can also make another word, and this is the word resign. And as we are faced with various trials and tribulations in this life, as we are faced with challenges of crime, corruption, injustice, wars, rumors of wars, sicknesses like cancer, corona, marital issues, Financial hardships, economic shutdown. You begin to think and to wonder whether the Lord reigns or the Lord has resigned. At times it feels as though he has resigned. It feels as though he is distant. It feels like the Lord our Master did feel on the cross. So you are not by yourself. You are in the company of your great shepherd who said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or like the saints, as we look in the book of Revelation, and we're going to see this next week, the saints in the book of Revelation, they're crying out, how long, oh Lord, how long will you not avenge the blood of your saints? It feels at times that God has resigned. It feels as though he is not reigning, but rather he has resigned. And we have this urge within us. It does not matter whether you are a Christian or you are not, but the present order of things cannot continue indefinitely. That is how we think. No one is satisfied with the present condition. Even those who despise the teachings of the Bible, they hope for a better day. They hope for a golden age. They hope for an era of blessedness such as this earth has never yet witnessed. That's why you go to the graveyard on every tombstone, you see this inscription, rest in peace. That there is the greatest confusion of thought and belief among us Christians concerning their hope may readily be proven by questioning a number of, a number of questions regarding the, the nature of their hope. What is our hope as Christians? We may fight as to when, maybe as to the timeline, when is Jesus Christ going to come? When is he going to return? Is it the, before the tribulation? Is it after? Is it in the middle of tribulation? But one truth, overriding truth that we all agree is that he will return. What is our hope in this hopeless world? 
If, if we may ask an average Christian, an average church goer, what is your hope? One may say, salvation is my hope. He hopes to be saved when he comes to die. Ask another, he will tell you that death is his hope. It is then that he will be released from the sufferings of this world, the sufferings of the flesh. So there is this unstated, undescribed hope that some people would think, better if I just die, that is my hope. Or if we bring a third Christian and we ask them as to what is your hope, they would say, Heaven is my hope. And in light of what we have learned, and in light of what you have been taught all the way from Sunday school until now, there is this thinking that heaven, that particular place, that's our hope. I'd love to tell you that heaven is not our hope. Hmm. Some hope in a future happiness. Some hope in this utopia, a place. No, beloved, I want to, to show you this morning as we come to this particular text, we continue Daniel chapter 7. We are not just chasing another place, we are chasing a person. We are not just chasing an experience. We are not seeking for another reincarnation as the Buddhist would claim. No, we are seeking for a resurrection. We are not chasing after a privilege. We are chasing after God himself. He reigns. And as such as you see here, with all the atrocities that you are seeing in the world, and you are looking at the kingdoms of men, and you are seeing what they are doing, I would love you and I to take a pause and remind you what chapter 7, verse 9 to 10, and verse 13 to 14 of this chapter tells us. This, these chapters, they shine a spotlight first on the kingship of God, who is portrayed in Daniel as the ancient of days, the one whose reign is from everlasting. He is the one who comes and he reveals himself to Daniel as the eternal one. And in this particular context this morning, we begin to see that he destroys and delivers kingdoms. So stand on your feet this morning as we mother and we look unto this text, reading from verse number 10, chapter 7. The Most High reigns. A steam of fire issued, came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. 
And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The courts sat in judgment. And the books were opened. I looked, says Daniel, then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and, 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 and its body was destroyed. And it was given over to be burnt with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But for their lives, they were prolonged. For a season and a time. I saw in the night visions. And behold the clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days. And was presented before him. And to him this one. Was given dominion. And glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word to him be glory. Amen. So last week we took some time as we on and we examined this particular section. And if you were so, so attentive, you would agree with me that we left from verse number 9. It is prudent for us to continue from to verse number 10. We lay precept upon precept, line upon line, and see what is transpiring in this particular context. We are seeing in verse number 9 to verse number 10, verse number 13 to verse number 14, the limelight, the spotlight is first on the kingship of God. He is the one who comes... And Daniel foresees this. Daniel looks at this beautiful sign. And he sees the second king. One who is eternal. Like a human being. And I want you to know this. That in the face of all the atrocities. That Daniel is seeing in this particular context. The four kingdoms. That are rising from the seas. Their nature and the way that they are going to operate. Daniel is encouraged to behold this eternal sight. God takes him into the future. How things are going to end. And he shows him that there will be the end to the fourth beast. And we find as to the manner in which God is going to execute his justice. The nature as to how things are going to transpire. As Daniel takes a look at the end of the script. He looks 
And the last line in verse number 10, we are told that the books were opened. God destroys the kingdoms of men. He does that. All kingdoms of men will come to an end. On what basis will God destroy the kingdoms of men? Look with me, verse number 10. The Bible tells us that books were open. What does that tell you? He will evaluate them. He is doing thorough evaluation of every nation. And as we look in the Bible, as we see it from the book of Exodus, the book of Isaiah, the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verses number 1, the books here mentioned, there are kinds of books that we, we hear in the Bible. I want to pick two in this particular context. The first one is the book of life. The book of life records the names of God's people, those who have been admitted into the family of God. God ever works and he's very much aware who they are. Their names are written there. If you want to prove, you can write these verses down. In Isaiah chapter number 4, verse number 3, we hear there in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter number 69, verse number 28. In the book of Luke, a very familiar passage of scripture, the disciples of Jesus come and they are actually coming to Jesus with joy. The demons were actually obeying them. Remember what he says, do not rejoice that demons are bowing down to you. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. And the picture is also shown in the consummation of time. And it's prudent for us to look at this. In the book of Revelation, chapter number 13, we are told of these books as well. Listen to what John sees in chapter 13. And very important because it is after mentioning of the same fourth beast that John says this. Listen to what John says concerning the fourth beast, the fourth kingdom. It was allowed to make war on the saints. We'll look at that next week. It was allowed to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language. This fourth beast. And all who dwell on the earth. What are they doing? They worshipped it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundations of the world were in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So as the Lord is judging these nations, He is not haphazardly judging them. They were destined before the foundations of the world to come to this place of judgment. And there are books Including the book of remembrance. The book of deeds. 
which records the deeds of humanity, both positive and negative. In the book of Psalm 56 verses 8, the psalmist would lament as he cries out, looking at their crime and their injustice in the land. As he wept, he comes to God and listen to what the psalmist says. Concerning the book of remembrance, you have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? He asked. The psalmist in Psalm 139 verses number 6. Your eyes saw my informed substance. In your book were recorded every one of them the days that were formed for me. When yet there was none of them. He records nicely, ever works, the works nicely. We are going to come to that. But here are the books are opened. Before these nations are judged, God is looking at the books. Looking at their works and looking at their words. For every word spoken will be acknowledged and will be held to account. Every work done will be recorded and will be brought to account. Don't lose that. This applies to both believers and non-believers. Yes, it is. All works are recorded. All works are accounted for. And listen to this in the book of Malachi, chapter number 3. Write this verse down, verse number 16 to 18. Because I want you to go home, study the scriptures to see what is here is true. Listen to Malachi, chapter number 3, from verse number 16, not verse number 10, right? Verse number 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. By the way, Malachi... Malachi also, by the sovereign grace of God, takes a look into eternity. That is a context. Then he sees the company of the saints in verse 16, and he says that those who feared the Lord, they were speaking to one another. Listen to what Malachi said. The Lord paid attention and he heard them. What follows next, verse number 16, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord, and what are they doing? And they esteemed his name. Very clear there, no need for exposition. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves me. I'm underlining that word deliberately because it comes again in Daniel chapter number 7. You shall see this distinction of those who serve me or those who serves God and the one who does not serve him. What's a unique aspect there? It's that the Lord paid attention, the Lord hears them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of them. 
who feared him. Those who did not fear him are also recorded. It's, it's all documented and it's all there. He judges justly. He does his investigation. Sir, before you will be summoned to this throne, every evidence will be gathered against you. And the one who is gathering that evidence is the Lord God Almighty who knows your thoughts and your actions. When a man has been charged with or by a crime, the police comes to a man or a woman and remember what the policeman or the policewoman will say. They say, sir, we have a summon to arrest you. You better hold your peace or everything you say now will be held against you in the court of the law. That same declaration hangs on the sons and the daughters of Adam from the day they are conceived. Such that when God is summoning the nations, He's bringing the nations to himself and he's about to judge these nations. He is not just judging them haphazardly. He has well-documented evidence. More than the evidence documented by the state capture inquiry. He has a well-documented evidence evaluating the works of men. On that basis, too, based on their works and their words. Look at verse number 10. Books are opened, but I want you to see their works. Verse number 7, the Bible tells us the works of these kingdoms. What are their works? Look at verse number 7. We are told concerning this fourth beast, the works. After this, I'm so, um, Daniel says, I saw in the night vision, behold, a fourth beast. It is terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. What is it doing? It devoured and broke in pieces and stampled what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts. In, in other words, what Daniel is saying in verse number 7, same language he uses in verse number 19, we see there, look at your Bible, then I desire to know the truth about that fourth beast. It was different from all the rest exceedingly terrifying. In other words, it was causing terror. It was a fear-mongering beast. This is the kind of kingdom we're talking about. It does not instill faith in people to fear God, but rather it instills fear in God's people to fear it. Verse number 17 tells us, 19, with its teeth of iron and claw of bronze, which it devoured and it broke in pieces, stumped what was left with its feet. Verse number 25 tells us what is it doing. In verse 23, first, it shall devour the whole earth, trample it down, break it to pieces. 
In essence, what you have, the works of this particular kingdom, the works of this beast, it is dreadful, it destroys, it devours, it dominates. It is deceptively distinct, so smart. Revelation tells us that. Super smart, adored by men. It, it is not going to be detested by men. It's actually so cunning and deceptive that even the elect will be deceived by it, although it has the power to damn God's people. As we see in verse 21, we see concerning this beast. As I looked, the horn made war with the saints, prevailed against them. Verse number 25, we also told, He shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So it is detesting and damning God's people. Those are the works of this particular kingdom. The words of this particular kingdom, the words, it defies God. It blasphemes God. It has no kind word of God and about God. You do not expect it to accept or to be able to appreciate anything of God. Revelation chapter number 13, verse number 5 to 8. Hear these words, therefore, concerning the same beast. John sees it as well. And listen to what John says. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 40 months. It opened its mouth, verse 6 tells us, to utter blas blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven, as it was allowed to make war on the saints to conquer them, and authority was given it over tribes, peoples, and languages, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. So it does assume deity. Do you see that? Not only is it deceptive, not only is it dreadful, but it also assumes deity. People are worshiping it. And beloved, as you look at this kingdom and you look at God on the basis on which he is coming in to execute these kingdoms of men, in particular this particular kingdom, the basis on which he is going to judge is on the basis that the works of this particular last kingdom, according to what we see in Daniel, the works are not works as they are acceptable in the eyes of God. The words are actually blasphemous words. Now let's pause. If you remember very well, in chapter number 4 and chapter number 5, both Nebuchadnezzar and Bethesda, they were mocked by arrogance. You remember that? 
Nebuchadnezzar would stand and say, this is my kingdom. I built it. Belshazzar, same arrogance. And this arrogant attitude characterizes unbelieving gentle powers of all time. All man's kingdoms, if there is one character trait that characterizes the kingdoms of men, is that the kingdoms of men, they are at core boastful. They do not glorify God. They do not glory in God, but in self. And as you see it, even as we come in the church setting, during the time of Jesus Christ, you would think that the religious folk would get it better. Maybe they would appreciate. Maybe they would understand. But I'm fearful that the same spirit of the age has crept into the church. Because you find that as Jesus Christ came on the scene, coming in to declare the kingdom of God, as he preached Matthew 4, 17, he went about, he started to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. You would have expected the Jews, you would expect the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to get a grasp quickly. But lo and behold, there are two kingdoms that we all try to set up. And that's two. The first one is that of religion. And the second one is that of riches. Remember this story. As the Lord Jesus Christ stands on the night as he was about to go to the cross. The evidence for the three years of his ministry pointed that this is none other than the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. The evidence pointed to the fact that this is the promised Messiah, the King of Israel. But chapter 19 of John tells us this. Pilate took Jesus flogged him and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns. What do they do? They put it on his head. They arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him and they said, what are they saying? Hell, king of the Jews. Not in submission, in slander. Not in meekness that they want to bow before him, but in mockery they say that. They struck him on, their, on his cheek with their hands. Pilate once again, he comes and he brings Christ in his humiliation. Blood oozing from his head, a crown of thorn in his head, his back torn by those lashes that they had to whip him. He is a man of sorrow who is acquainted with grief, the Lamb of God. At this point in time, in the eyes of the Jews, 
Though they look at this man, to them, he's not a king. What do they say? Crucify him. What do they say? We have one king. And that king is Caesar. They deny him. Because he was coming in and trying to change their religious ethos. He was coming in to bring this kingdom, but they denied that kingdom because that kingdom was actually not in line to their religion. They wanted to do their own works and they trusted in their own works and not this particular work. Although they knew that their works were not in standard to what God had required, they crucified a perfect savior. So we too, in our religious gowns, we do not submit to the kingdom of God. We would rather submit to our own kingdoms of self-righteousness. We would rather set ourselves as kings and our own saviors. We would deny Jesus Christ like these men, away with him. We would rather submit to the kingdoms of this age and not to the kingdom that is to come. And I want you to see here, beloved, that there is a similarity as Jesus Christ is looking at this, as the Lord is judging these kingdoms. He knows that their works are not fitting and in keeping to his works. And their words are arrogant words. They boast in their own power. They boast in their own wisdom. They boast in their own riches. They boast in their own strength. They boast in their own victories. And that is the spirit that is going to mark the end time. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter number 3. I'm reading from verse number 1. Listen to this. Paul says, understand this then, first of all. In the last days, there will be time of difficulty. People will be lovers of self. They will be lovers of money. First time he uses the word, same word as boasting. They will be proud. In other words, they'll be pretentiously prideful. They will be given to bragging. That's what Paul means there. Two, they will be arrogant. You would think you have used pride and arrogance. It's one and the same thing. No, I want you to see the difference there. Arrogant, pertaining to being abusively disobedient and haughty. Being super haughty, super proud. Number two, he says they will be arrogant, being they, then they will be abusive and disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. Verse 3, they will be heartless, unpeaceable, they will be slanderous, without self-control, not loving what is good, traitorous, reckless. Another word, similar to the word that we are looking at, boastful, they will be swollen with conceit. These are men and women in the last days, what Paul is saying, men will be insanely arrogant, extremely proud, 
so arrogant as to practically be demented. They will forget about everybody else. They will forget about anyone else. And they will be so consumed about themselves. So selfish. The God they will worship is me, myself, and I. So based on their words and on the basis of their words, God executes the kingdoms of men. And that execution is just. It is just because there is evidence. It is just because even the guilty one would say, I am guilty as charged. Every evidence points to me. If there was wrath coming, it must end on me. If there was judgment coming, it must come on me. Even a sinner would be, give, would be giving glory to God for sending fire on him. That's a picture that is painted here. Such that verse number 11, Daniel says, As I looked, the beast was killed. The body destroyed. It was given over to be burned with fire. And the same is written concerning the same beast in Revelation chapter 19 verse number 20. And this beast was taken with, the, with him the false prophets. And very interesting the, the theme of false prophets and this beast as it will occur in the last days, you can do this homework when you go home. Second Peter chapter number two. Read as to the marks of the false prophets in the last days, in the latter days. They will also be marked with boastfulness. They, they, they will not respect God's authority. They, they will seduce others into idol worship. They will seduce others into sexual immorality. They will exploit others for financial gain if they feel like it. They will profane the gatherings of believers. False prophets. We do have them in Africa. A lot of them. Some call themselves major prophets. But before the throne of this holy God, they will realize they were not even minor. They were but nothing. Deserving of fire. So it is a fair judgment. Although God in his sovereignty will permit that the other, the other part of the other kingdoms would be extended. There is an extension of the other kingdoms of men which we are going to come to later on. But as the Lord is doing this, as he's destroying one kingdom on the basis of their words and their works, what do we see lastly? We are seeing the picture we find from verse number 13 then. Daniel sees this. He says that I saw in the night vision. What else do you see, Daniel? Behold the clouds of heaven. And there came one like the son of man. So number two, beloved, God reigns. Number one, because he destroys the kingdoms of this world. One. Two, he reigns because he delivers his kingdom, first and foremost, to his son. 
You can see that, verse number 13, all the way to verse number 14. He delivers the kingdom to his son. Go home, we are going to look at this next week. The second part, verse number 15, all the way to the last verse, you will see not only is God delivering the kingdom to his son, but he also delivers the kingdom to the saints. Go look at it when you, when you get home. But what I want us to examine, the son part. The son of man, one like the son of man, is brought before the ascent of days. Presumably the angelic attendants in heaven court, probably they usher him forward. We need to ask the question, where is he coming from? He comes to the ascent of days. He comes with the cloud. So the ascent of days is seated high above the heavens. The ascent of days is there. And the Son of Man is coming. And I want you to see how Daniel here is looking at this picture. He's not looking at this picture in its sequential or chronological order. As we find in the Bible. He first sees the very end. It's like looking at mountain peaks. He comes to this peak. Then he realizes, oh, there's another peak there. We cannot see the valleys. We don't in this particular case. So I want to take it down to the valleys. Because there is a valley from which this son of man is coming from. Why is he called the son of man? He is one like the son of man. And the title son of man implies that this one, one like the son of man, he appears to be a God man. And in the gospels, as we look at the Bible, this refers to none other but Jesus Christ himself. Because the fact that this refers to the son of God, Jesus Christ, becomes the clear embodiment of this one because no one else ever uses this title when talking to or talking about Jesus so it seems to have been Jesus although we find it in Ezekiel that the Lord would refer to Ezekiel here and there as son of man prophesied to these bones but in this particular context it's the son of man And Jesus Christ, if you read the book of Mark, he avoids the title Messiah. He adopts the phrase, the Son of Man. If you read the book of Mark, Jesus Christ, as he uses the term, he quotes Daniel. He summarizes the theme that runs through the Hebrew literature. It's about the hope for a new humanity who will finally realize the ideal purpose that God has for men. This is the storyline that begins to be revealed to us from the very first day when our forefathers, Adam and Eve, sinned. Why? am I saying that? I'm glad you ask. So turn with me then to the book of Genesis chapter 3. 
and see with me. In Genesis chapter 3. And here are some observations that I want you to see. In Genesis chapter 3, after our forefather Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord makes this promise. And this is where eschatology begins. Eschatology does not begin in Revelation. The second coming of Christ, the story does not begin in the book of Revelation. It begins actually in Genesis. Look at chapter number 3. We hear the first people and the serpent of old, who is called the devil in, Gen in the book of Revelation 12. God makes this so clear. And if this is my stance, that it is very apparent that as we read through the Old Testament, the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ did not exhaust the burden and the scope of the numerous predictions which had been made concerning him. One of it is found here. When we look at the person and the work of Christ, in verse number 3, chapter 3, verse number 15, God says, I will put an enmity between the serpent and the woman, and between the seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And in this particular verse, and as you examine this, we can see a number of things which I want to bring to your attention. First, the woman is to have a seed. We know the point here that the Bible is making, it is making to the fact that our Lord's humanity, as He is going to come here on the face of the earth, He will be born of a woman. He is the second Adam in essence. Second, he was to be particularly this woman. This woman is the one who is going to give this seed birth, not the man. Hence we read, when the fullness of time had come. Galatians chapter number 4, verse number 4. What does the Bible say? God, listen to this, sent forth his son. Born of a woman. Born under the law. Why? So that he may redeem those who were under the law. Said the woman's seed was to bruise the serpent. In other words, Satan was to be particularly one of the particular antagonists against Jesus. As Christ comes on the scene, as Jesus Christ is born, one of the key enemies, the one that Jesus Christ had come to destroy, is Satan himself. Hebrews chapter number 2, verse number 17. 1 John chapter number 3, verse number 8. The Son of God appeared that he may destroy the works of the devil. The devil is the chief antagonist against the work of Christ. And Satan himself, as he is coming to fight against the Son of God in the manner in which that he is going to achieve this. He will 
bruise his heel. Whereas the seed of the woman, we are told that the seed of the woman is going to crush his head. Now, if you consider the first coming of Jesus, in his first appearance, there was both the, what do we call, the, 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 the now and the, the not yet. There was the consummation of that. There was the conception of the kingdom of God. And this war that the Bible speaks and depicts that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. But we are going to see yet the coronation of this king. There is the consummation of whatever has been promised. In God's word, such that what you find in the life of Jesus Christ, no sooner as he began his life in Bethlehem, the dragon, Satan himself, came. What was he doing? Coming to tempt him. At the inauguration of his ministry, he was tempted, he was tried. He tried him. Satan tried Jesus Christ for 40 days. On the eve of his crucifixion, Satan came in. What is he trying to do? He's tempting him. But he's only able to succeed when Jesus Christ says these words in Luke 22, verse 53. This is your hour and the power of darkness. He actually relinquishes all his power he relinquishes all his authority he lays aside all his privileges even those who are coming to arrest him they are not coming to arrest him as one who is powerless remember they say we are looking for jesus he says i am he they fell they ask again in the book of john we are told he says i am he they fell until he tells them to say okay you know what we're going to do? Allow my disciples to go. Then you can get me. He willingly submits himself. Peter tries to defend him. He tries to play bodyguard. Right? Jesus says, no. If, if it was possible, I would call for the legion of angels to fight for me. I cannot do that. It is not yet the time. So he willingly submits and lays aside his glories. He dies the death he did not deserve. For you and for me. Our works condemned us. Our words would even condemn us even further. But yet God takes the judgment that was rightfully ours. Pours it on his son. And his son accomplishes the justice of God. Satisfies it to the full. It is him. From that valley he ascends to heaven. From that valley, he comes and is crowned as a king of kings and lord of lords. Daniel does not see that. Daniel does not see the lamb who was slain to redeem us back to the Lord our God. Daniel does not see the lamb who was slain because our works and our words condemned us. Daniel does not see that. Daniel sees his exhortation. And believer, take heart. He, this one, is our hope. 
heaven in and of itself apart from this one it's just another place what is our hope as Christians? We are not hoping just for another place. We are hoping for Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1 verse 1. Jesus is the believers all in all. Colossians 3 verses number 11. He is our peace in Ephesians 2 verse 14. He is our life in Colossians 4 3 verse 14. He is the one who was made unto us wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. He is our hope. But hope always looks forward, doesn't it? Hope has to do with the future. In Romans chapter number 8, verse 24, records to us, we are saved in hope. But if hope that, if, 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 but if hope that is seen is not hope, for what is, what a man sees that he hopes for, but we hope not in a place, not in a privilege. We hope in the person, in the work of Christ. One who has satisfied the justice of God. One who has been exalted at the right hand of God the Father. One who is even now interceding for us. One whom the Father God has elevated above all other kingdoms. One whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That's the one we hope for. Such that we can say, therefore, with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. And like the sense of awe, believer, when everything seems like it's falling apart and it feels as though the Lord has resigned, you can say with the sense of awe, Come. Lord Jesus, come. Why? Because He is our hope. Elevated above all, exalted over all, everlasting in His reign. And it is Him who calls you, come to me, all you who are willing and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's Him. It's him who says the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is him who is saying to you and I today, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you, so that where I am, there you might be also. It is him who says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It is him who says in the face of death, I am the resurrection, I am the life. 
It is him who tells you in chapter 16, verse 33, in this world, you shall have tribulations. You shall have a lot of trials, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. He says, it is done. All power, authority, heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, make disciples of all nations. And I am with you always. To the ends of the earth. So the Lord has not resigned. The Lord reigns. So let us rejoice and be glad. For we are not going to just a place of utopia where we are trusting like our politicians would promise us. No, we are not trusting in that. We are going to meet this one, the darling of heaven. And when he shall appear, we shall be like him. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is sure. What man of love the Father has shown us. Beloved, rejoice in him. Is it looking like it's dark? He is beautiful. He is the light of the world. Does it seem like everything is falling apart? He holds all things together by the power of his word. Are you trying to preserve your life that you cannot love him? He says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Count everything as rubbish compared to surpassing value. Of knowing this one. Amen. He loves you. Nobody else has loved you like he has. He will never break your heart. He will mend it. He will not cast you off. He will welcome you in. Just as you are. Not on the basis of your works. Not on the basis of your words. Because if we would come before God. On the basis. Every one of the evidence condemns you. He is your advocate before the Father. Believe him today. Let him rule over your life. Let him rule over your family. Let him rule over every decision you take. He is worthy living for, but even worthy dying for. Let's bow our heads and we pray. Our glorious King and Lord Jesus. You are the King eternal. Though now we see in part, though now we prophesy in part, but when you, the perfect one, appears, we shall know fully as we have been fully known. When you look at things around us, it looks as though the world is winning. It looks as though Satan and his demons are triumphing over us. This morning we bow before you. The God of our mundane circumstances. You know our tears. You are very much aware of our fears. Fear of the economic situation. Fear of the health 
dangers befall us, fear even to serve you. Laying aside everything, we desire to love you. Do we are weak, Lord? We are neighbor. Won't you send your spirit to empower us? I'm aware of some that are going through depression, loneliness, anxiety. Some are not sure about tomorrow. We entrust everything about us in the one who is able to hold us together. So be glorified. May your kingdom come. Your will be done as it is in heaven. In your glorious name we pray. May God's people say amen.